Our reading today is Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord is absolutely true and given to us in love. You can be seated. There was a pastor uh, who lived uh, and ministered primarily in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And in the, in the 20s and 30s, this man, Henry Garricky, was a chaplain and a pastor uh, at a rescue mission in St. Louis. So a rescue mission not, not that unlike this one. Right? He served uh, alongside the, uh, the staff of that mission. He worked with the poor and the homeless to give them shelter and, and to serve a, a distressed neighborhood. That was what Garricky did in St. Louis uh, in the 20s and 30s. And then as World War II picked up, uh, he went and, without the permission of his wife, uh, enlisted as a chaplain in the U.S. Army. He got in uh, his application to be a chaplain just a few days before his 50th birthday, at which point he would have been too old uh, to enlist as a chaplain in the Army. But seeing the news coming back uh, from overseas, seeing the way that his countrymen were uh, fighting and suffering, uh, both in the Pacific and in Europe, he felt like he wanted to do his duty and he needed to go and to serve alongside uh, the armed forces to shepherd them and to be their chaplain. And so Garricky uh, packed it up as an almost 50-year-old and went over. He was, uh, he was stationed in Europe. Uh, he, was a, he was a Lutheran minister, and he spoke German quite fluently. And so they stationed him uh, in Western Europe through the, after D-Day and as the forces, uh, Allied forces moved into Europe. He served there as a chaplain. 
in that role, he was exposed uh, to some of the, the worst horrors that people can be exposed to, to the violence and death and terror of war. And he was left to deal with, as so many people of faith are, whether in wartime or just through the, the sufferings of this life, he was left face to face with the problem of evil. Right? Where is God in a world like this? Right? If, if we, and the problem of evil is thought about by theologians and philosophers goes like this. Right? If God, uh, the God who rules the universe, is really good and loving and all-powerful, then why and how do we suffer in these ways? Right? Why does evil run rampant in the world? Why is there warfare? Why is there death? Why is there sickness? Right? These are the, the kinds of things that philosophers have written thousands and thousands of pages of books about. Theologians have done the same. It's the same question that, that ordinary Christians and ordinary people, humans, wrestle with, whether it be at gravesides or in hospital rooms or just in the, the turmoil of our lives. Right? Where is God? How can God be good and there be so much evil in the world? The biblical answer that we see traced out, even in the Old Testament, even in places like Isaiah 53 that we just read, is that this question about God and evil isn't a merely hypothetical or philosophical one, right? It's not one that we just think about and write about, right? That it gets solved not ultimately outside of history. It gets solved not ultimately philosophically, but worked out in real people and real stuff in history, right? We see already in Isaiah 53 that, that God has a plan, that God will not coexist with evil forever, that he has a plan ultimately to lay evil on the person of the servant uh, that Isaiah talks about, to lay evil in one place, to concentrate it on one man, and there to expose it and to judge it and to atone for it and to deal with it forever. Right? That God's answer to the problem of evil uh, gets answered for us on the cross. And now for Gerecki, uh, that faith was put to the test that faith on whether or not he really believed that sin and evil were atoned and dealt with on the cross, that, that, that belief got pressed in his life when after uh, the surrender of the Germans, he got his next orders. Gericke received uh, his next orders were to go to Nuremberg where the leaders of Nazi Germany were to stand trial for their war crime where the, the worst of the worst, Hitler's right and left-hand men, uh, men like uh, Hermann Goering was there. And we're going to be facing trial for their crimes, facing what their, their almost inevitable death for their crimes. And Gericke was asked to come in and serve as their chaplain as they faced trial, as they went through the, the anguish of that. And he wrestled for a long time, can I do this? Right? Having seen the horrors that they perpetrated, having seen the camps that these men orchestrated, having seen all of that, can I go and believe that the gospel, that the cross, has something to say, some hope to offer for even these men, even for the very worst of the worst? We'll pick up with Gericke's story uh, as, we, as we go today. But ultimately, he took the call. He took the call and went to Nuremberg with the belief that at the cross, God has both exposed evil and dealt with it. He's exposed it 
and he has dealt with it for what it is. First, uh, let's look at the way that the cross reveals and exposes evil uh, for what it really is. You know, Isaiah says uh, here in verse chapter six, in uh, chapter 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. When Isaiah goes to define sin, to, get, to define what's gone wrong, he picks a very, very ordinary metaphor that every one of us like sheep has wandered away from our shepherd and chosen life on our own terms. You know, it's interesting, when we think of evil, when we think of, of, of the worst of humanity, oftentimes we approach it through these big picture, you know, you think of the Holocaust. You think of the worst that humanity has done. And yet Isaiah picks this very, very ordinary, very pedestrian metaphor to say, actually, the problem of evil exists in every single one of us. Because all of us, every single human being, like a sheep wandering from its shepherd, has gotten lost. Each one of us has turned our back uh, on our shepherd, our king, our God, and thought that we uh, could organize our lives better than he could for us. And so we go out, we leave his care, and go and look for life on our own. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. Uh, in the, God says through Jeremiah, you have turned your back to me and not your face. Right? God made us to live face to face with him in communion. He made us to find our fullness in him, to find our life and our joy in him. That's what our first parents, Adam and Eve, were made for, to live in this communion with God. But God says, you've turned your back on me and not your face. You've, you've wandered off. And if we want to understand what's gone wrong in the world, if we want to understand why the world is as broken as it is, why the world is as violent as it is, it starts with this very basic recognition that the problem of evil exists not off somewhere in, in the worst of the worst. It's not just the problem of tyrannical dictators and warlords and murderers, but that it's, that it's in all of us, that all of us, like sheep, have wandered away. And as sheep without a shepherd, we've gotten lost and hurt and broken. You know, the, the tragedy uh, of evil is that every one of us, and we can look back at our lives, I think, and see this, that every one of us, most of the sin in our lives, most of the terrible decisions we've made, most of the ways that we've hurt others, it started with our own intentions of doing what we thought was right, right? What we thought we needed to do to survive, what we thought we needed to do to make life tolerable, or what we thought we needed to do to really find joy and comfort in life, right? That it's not, yes, sometimes we do make decisions just straight up out of hate, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's sheep wandering away from the kingship of God, wandering away from our shepherd and just doing what we thought would, would secure life for us. And that's one of the things that we see at the cross is that in some ways the cross does represent the very worst of humanity. It represents some of the, the, the most vile things that human beings have ever thought of to do to another human being. Right, the cross in the Roman Empire was the penalty that they reserved. Uh, Cicero calls it, called it a slave's death. Right? It's a death that's not worthy of Roman citizens. It's not worthy of property owners. It's only for the, those who Rome is defeated in battle. It's only for the slaves and the servants. It's only for the worst offenders who weren't viewed as being worth the dignity in their eyes of a, of a proper death. And so it was a torturous way to die. It was a terrible way to die. It was a way to die that not only was physically torturous, 
but exposed the, the, the person crucified to, to shame. It was, it was everybody who passed by would know this was a, an offender who wasn't worthy of a dignified death, would be crucified naked by the road, so everybody who walked by saw it. And so in some ways, the cross represents the very worst of humanity. And yet in some ways, the cross, as the Romans saw it and as the, and as the, uh, the Jews of the day saw it, actually represented some of their, their very best efforts. Right? Uh, one theologian, Fleming Rutledge, put it this way. Jesus' execution was carried out by all the best people representatives of the highest religious and governmental authorities, right? These were the religious leaders of Israel desiring to keep their faith pure that betrayed Jesus and handed him over to the Romans. And then this was, this was Caesar. This was the most powerful empire, most powerful government that the world had ever seen. Some of the most technologically advanced uh, cities and civilizations the world had ever seen were ruled by Rome. And so this represented, in some ways, humanity's best efforts at, moral, at moralism and religion, some of humanity's best efforts at government and empire, leading to humanity's darkest day, uh, the crucifixion of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's all because, that kind of evil is all because each one of us in our own way has gone astray, wandered away from our shepherd. Isaiah goes on, and he tells us uh, what the, the fruit of this kind of walking away looks like. If you look at verse 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, he tells us, he gives us four ways of describing our life under sin. He says, surely he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. And then in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Griefs, sorrows, transgressions, and iniquities. Transgressions uh, and iniquities. Transgressions just means the things that we do that break God's laws. Transgressions are those, those thousands of things that we do, whether big or small, that break God's commandments, that break God's teachings about what's best for us. Right? We all do this. We all, we all break God's commands on a regular basis. We do things that we know when we, should, when we do them that we shouldn't do. Right? We all do this. And that's the way that most of us think of sin, right? Most of us think of sin as the things that we do that we're not supposed to do, right? The, the lust that we harbor that we shouldn't harbor, the things that we look at that we shouldn't look at, the ways that we cheat on our taxes and in ways that we know we shouldn't cheat on our taxes, right? It's, it's, the, it's the things that we do that, that break the law. That's the way that most of us think of, of what sin is. We can think of that as sins with a lowercase s. That other word iniquity gets at something different. It gets its sin with a capital S. And the, the root of the Hebrew word that's translated iniquity here really means bentness, bentness. So it's, it's those things that we do that express that at a soul level, we are bent people, right? At a, at a heart level, we are bent back in on ourselves. Made to live for God and for our neighbors, we don't do that. Our hearts are bent towards selfishness, towards idolatry, Right? This gets at sin as a power. Right? Because of sin, because of evil, we're so broken that it's not just that we choose wrong things. It's that we can't help it. It's that we're so broken that we're, that we're intentionally and always thinking mostly of ourselves, not of our neighbor, not of God. Right? That because of this word iniquity, sin is not thought of just as the bad things that we do. Right? You can't, if you were to go out tomorrow 
and say, all right, I got it, right? Sin is the problem, so I'm going to go out and I'm just going to stop sinning, right? No more for me. I'm not going to lose my temper anymore, and I'm not going to be angry anymore, and I'm not going to be lustful anymore, and I'm not going to be greedy and prideful and arrogant. I'm going to, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and get right with God. Right? If, if, that's, if, if your only view of sins is little things that you could fix in your life if you tried hard enough, then you miss the biblical picture of sin, which is that you are so broken that no amount, every, the, the more you try harder, the worse you're going to get. Like a truck stuck in mud, the more you spin the tires, the deeper you're going to get. That it takes something beyond you to deal with the sin problem in your life. He tells us in verse 4, he uses those two other words, griefs and sorrows, which is just to say that our sin makes us miserable. Right? That the, the path that we choose that we think is going to lead to life instead leads to grief and sorrow. It leads to grief in our own lives and it leads to grief in our relationships that sin makes us uh, ultimately miserable. And so, with that bad news, uh, that the cross exposes everything that's wrong with humanity, everything that led us to this point, God in the cross not only reveals our sin, but he deals with it. He pours out sin, pours out the penalty for sin, on the person of this substitute, right? Uh, so you could, you could look at it this way, and you think of sin as uh, transgressions and, uh, and iniquity, that sin is both our guilt before God and sin's power over us in our lives, that at the cross, Jesus is both covering over our guilt and breaking the power of sin that it holds over us, that at the cross, both of those things are going on. And we're going to look a lot over the rest of the series about all the ways that those things happen, about all the ways that at the cross our sin is dealt with. But look at what Isaiah says. Uh, <clears throat> the very last verse, he says, Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. Right, the exception, uh, the, the expectation that we would all have if you see somebody dying from capital punishment is that he's paying the price for his sins, right? That he's paying the price for the guilt that he bears with him. And Jesus did, he died with two guilty men. On either side of him were two thieves who were getting the just punishment in the, under the justice system of the day for their crime. And yet Isaiah tells us that the servant on the cross wasn't bearing his own sin. Right, that Jesus lived a perfect life, a life utterly free from sin. But on the cross, he was bearing the sins of humanity. That he was bearing our sin on the cross. That's why he died that death. Not for his own guilt, but for our guilt. And this really, uh, this idea of a substitution at the cross, that he takes our guilt in exchange, we get his righteousness, we get his goodness. God looks at us as though we are just as innocent as Jesus, right? That substitution for sin is at the heart of the cross and what it means. And it's at the heart of why Christianity is offensive to, to honestly nearly everybody in the world, right? This idea that Jesus takes the punishment that we all deserve is offensive to, mo to most of the people in the world, right? Very, very open-minded and progressive people on the left find it utterly offensive to think that sin and righteousness 
are real categories that we don't get to define or make up for ourselves, right, that there really are moral evils in the world and that we really are accountable to someone beyond us, right, that we're not free to make up our own morality as we go, right, but that, that each of us, that sin is a reality that we're going to have to answer to a righteous God for. For, mo for most progressive, open-minded Western people, that is deeply offensive. We like to think that, that morality is a, uh, kind of in the eye of the beholder. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And the cross says no. If that was the case, right, then the cross would make absolutely no sense. Right, if God was just kind of an open-minded, loving God who just, you know, I'm, yeah, I've got, I'm, he's just gracious to everybody and loving to everybody, then he never would have had to die. Right? He never would have had to demonstrate his love for us in shedding his own blood. I had a, a phone call last week with a friend, and he was confessing a sin to me that was, it was really, it was just one of those, it was just super minor. It was one of those, yeah, Dave, we talked last week, and I said this, and I'm, I'm worried that I offended you, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And I was able to say to him, like, it's no big deal. Really, I didn't notice it. I didn't think about it. Like, really, you don't need to lose sleep over this. It's nothing. Right? God can't do that. I, I have the luxury of telling my friend, hey, it's no big deal, because I'm not the moral judge of the universe whose righteousness upholds all things. Right? That's not me. Right? I'm somebody who can just overlook things. But if God overlooked sin, even the smallest sins, then we would live in a world without justice, without morality, without order. God, as the righteous judge of the universe, has to take sin seriously has to take righteousness seriously. And that's what we see on the cross. And so if that's the, if that's the objection that open-minded, progressive people feel towards the cross and why it's wounding to them, it's offensive also to religious and conservative folks. Right? The idea that the sinners out there are going to get out of their punishment because some guy 2,000 years ago died. You go, no! No, they've got to pay for what they've done, right? There's, there's something about, uh, about us that can't deal with the thought of people getting off the hook uh, for what they've done and what they deserve punishment for, right? So it's offensive to us. This is the, one of the reasons that the cross of Jesus is so uh, insulting uh, to people who live within the system of Islam, right? They acknowledge that Jesus was a good teacher, they acknowledge that even that Jesus was a prophet. But it's two things. It's the idea that a, that a prophet could die a shameful death like crucifixion that's offensive to them. And it's this idea that one person could die and take the penalty of other people. When we read the Quran, we find this line. Every soul earns only to its own account, and no soul laden bears the load of another. Right at the core of the religion is this idea that we have to stand before God alone for what we've done and bear the guilt uh, that we've earned before him. And so Christianity is offensive. It's offensive to all. It's offensive to those who would rather not think and talk about sin at all. It's offensive to those who want to talk about sin a lot but are pretty sure that it's a problem for other people. Right? The cross is offensive. Paul knew this in his ministry. He talked about how the cross was offensive. It was offensive to the Jews. It was offensive to the Gentiles. Right? It was the offense of the cross that one man took the penalty for others' sin. Okay, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean in our lives? What, 
What difference does it make in the day-to-day -day life that we lead? There's a few questions for you. First, have you felt the peace that comes with stopping to bear your own guilt and sin and laying it down at the foot of the cross? Right? Some of you came in today worn out and heavy, feeling guilty for the sin that you know you carry with you in here, knowing how far short your life falls of your own best intentions and how far short your life falls of God. You don't have to carry that anymore. The cross means that you can lay that down and trust Jesus to deal with the guilt and penalty of your sin. One of my favorite pictures of this in all of literature is from The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story uh, by John Bunyan, a Puritan author, where he tells the story. It's a, it's a kind of an allegory of the Christian life. It tells the story of a man named Christian. Not a very inventive name for, for an allegory. But a, but a man named Christian who carried with, he set out, he left home to go on a, a quest for salvation. And he carried with him a burden that weighed him down. And then he finally comes to the cross. And here's the way that Bunyan narrates that. He ran thus till he came at a place where somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher or a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do so until the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. His burden falls off and goes into the grave. And then Christian was glad and lightsome. And he said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And there he stood a while to look and to wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked there and he looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. He's given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Do you know that? Have you experienced the rest that comes through the, the sorrow of Christ, the joy that comes and the life that comes through his death? If not, it's as simple uh, as praying uh, today. Jesus, I want to lay down my guilt. I want to lay down my sin and trust you to deal with it. And I look to you to give me new life. Have you known that peace? Secondly, are you trusting in the power of the cross today the present power of the cross to give you meaning, to give you identity, and to set you free. You know, the cross isn't just something that happened way back then and there, right? It's not something that just happened back there in history. It's not something that just happened at some point back in our past, right? The power of the cross isn't something that you live with once, right? Maybe at a youth camp or someplace when you were a kid or maybe even as an adult where you came to know the saving power of the cross and then leave back there. It's something that we have to look to every day to deal with our guilt, to deal with our conscience, to trust for our hope. The cross isn't a back then and there. It's a here and now, present power in our lives. Right? I know that I don't do this very well. I know this because when somebody catches me in sin, right? when somebody exposes some element uh, of my wrongdoing, I instantly get, uh, get defensive and then go on the offensive Right? I instantly uh, blame others. I make excuses. Right? I, I don't want to just acknowledge, yeah, you know what, you're right. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I trust Jesus to forgive me. 
right? The cross has to become a present and a living reality in our lives. And then finally, do you trust the cross of Jesus uh, to deal with the worst evil uh, and the worst sin that this world has to offer, right? Or do you think that there's people who are beyond the power of the cross, people whose sins are too bad, who are too far gone to trust that Jesus took their sin too on the cross or could take their sin too to the cross? You know, this is what uh, Garricky did when he accepted the call to leave uh, his life as a chaplain uh, to the U.S. military and to go and to serve as a chaplain to the prisoners at Nuremberg, right? He was trusting that grace was true even for the worst offenders, that grace, the power of the cross, that there is no evil dark enough, there is no sin wayward enough, that it can't be dealt with in the cross, and so he did. So he went uh, to the prison at Nuremberg. And he ministered and he invited these Nazi war criminals to come to chapel with him. He invited them to repent, to confess their sins and to repent, to trust Jesus with their sins. When they repented, he offered them the Lord's Supper. Right? He, he, he tells in his wonderful little book's been written about his life called The Mission at Nuremberg. Most of them rejected. Most of them went to their gallows uh, unrepentant over what they had done, unwilling to turn to Jesus. One man, as he fell from the gallows, even said, Hail Hitler, on his way down. But one man, of the 15, five of them repented and trusted Jesus for salvation. His biography puts it this way. One man, his last words before hanging, where I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul, he said. And then turning toward the man who'd been the shepherd of his soul during his incarceration, who'd been his confessor, his preacher, and the one from whose hand he had received the body and blood of Jesus in the supper, he said, I will see you again. If the cross is true for any of us, it's got to be true for the worst of us. If the cross isn't sufficient to, care, to cover and to deal with the worst evil that the human heart is capable of, then it's not sufficient for any of us. But praise be to God. At the cross, Jesus does expose and deal with our sin and the sin of the world. Let's pray.